Hello and welcome to today's episode where I am reading Neville Goddard's lecture titled Faith from 1968. Neville tells his audience the Bible defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1, the Revised Standard Version. What is seen is made out of things that do not appear. Faith does not give reality to things that are not seen. It is loyalty to reality that makes things appear. Can I see the facts the world sees and still believe in the unseen state? If I can remain loyal to the unseen state, in some way I will get confirmation of it. <clears throat> John fourteen one three. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I, would go, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. <clears throat> that where I am, there ye may be also. This is not Jesus Christ talking to a disciple on the outside. It is I talking to myself. If all things are made by God and without him is not anything made that is made, John 1, three, then where is God in my imagination? <clears throat> you aren't called upon to make the things. All things already are. The whole vast creation is already finished. I am only becoming aware of it. Any state that I can imagine can be occupied. The whole thing is finished. And all I do is adjust to it and feel myself there until it becomes natural. <clears throat> you don't give reality to the unseen. It is loyalty to the unseen reality that gives it objectivity. You can, or you can revise the past. We, you and I, are here, born by the grace of God, and yet we dare to put a limit on the power of God our sin is our doubt of God. Some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? George Bernard Shaw. Senator Ted Kennedy used this quotation in his eulogy of Senator Robert F. Kennedy without giving credit to the author. However, Senator R. F. Kennedy was known to quote it many times, giving credit to to George Bernard Shaw, I know that I must be whatever I am in imagination. So don't treat this principle lightly. You truly move yourself into states mentally, wittingly, <clears throat> or unwittingly. A bridge of incidents will develop over which you will pass until the state is fulfilled, like pure imagining in us, and that, and that he works in the very depths of our soul underlying all of our faculties, including perception. But he streams into the surface mind least disguised in the form of creative fancy, like a daydream. Just a simple daydream. <clears throat> I think someone who is maybe a thousand miles away, or I think of someone who is maybe a thousand miles away. Well, that act, that perceptive act, unseen by anyone, that was God in action. Well, can I believe in the reality of that act? Can I represent him to myself as I would like to see him in the flesh? 
Can I see him successful? Can I see him well as I want to see him and believe in the reality of the unseen state? If I can remain loyal to that unseen reality, I will have confirmation that he is the being that I am assuming that he is. Someone will write me or maybe I'll meet him in the flesh, but in some way I will get confirmation that what I think I see in him or desire to see in him and persuade myself that I do see in him, that it will come to pass. Now one day in reading the 14th chapter of the book of John, having been told that Christ is in me and here is Christ now speaking to the disciples, well, if he is in me, what is he trying to tell me? He is speaking to the disciples. He said, you believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. Were it not so, would I have told you? Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be, or there ye shall be also. John 14, uh, verses 1 through 3. Well, it came to me as I read it from some peculiar intuitive depth that I am not talking to a disciple. Something on the outside. I'm talking to myself. This whole conversation is something within myself. I take the body called Neville. Let's see. The visible thing that is weak and limited and fragile. And I'm talking to it. You can't go. You're limited. It will take time to get there. It will take money to get there. Maybe you can't afford either the time or the money. But it will take me, if I'm in imagination, to go any place in this world without money. And I don't need time. I can sit in a chair and put my body, cumbersome as it is, on a chair or on a bed. And if I am all imagination, and God is a man as man's own wonderful human imagination, then I can be any place in this world that I desire to be. So I can go and prepare a place. So I tried it. I tried assuming that I am where reason would deny it. My senses deny it. But I remained in that state until it seemed natural to me. Just seemed natural. Well, then I went there. And then I opened my eyes upon the world that I had shut out, and it was a shock to find myself back in the chair. Well, if I analyze it, it seems stupid. What I did, it seemed real while I did it. And then one second later, here I am on my chair and everything I see in my room denies that I did anything that the world would call real. But I did it. And then, in the not distant future, I was forced across a series of events which led up to the fulfillment of that state. Now, I did it on a very cold winter night in New York City. I had brought out my first book, called Your Faith is Your Fortune, in the month of February in 1941. It was so cold, 12 or 14 inches of snow on the ground, and I expected in those days simply a voluntary offering on the part of those who came. And many came just for contacts. They didn't care what I had to say. They came to meet people, and they would go out for their coffee clutches and all these things after the meeting. I didn't care. It was a crowded house, over a thousand people, in a little old church off Times Square. I expected that night and this night because of the weather they couldn't get through the snow. I think we had 150 people 
and there was a certain personal disappointment because here was my first effort in bringing out a book. And so I had my books there and 150 came, not prepared to buy the book. And so we packed up at the end of the talk. <clears throat> when I went home that night, the snow was, as I say, 12 or 14 inches on the ground, and it was cold. When I got into bed, I did this thing almost absent-mindedly, but I did it, and I knew exactly what I did. Barbados, where I was born, is a little tropical island in the West Indies, and I assumed that I was actually on my bed in my mother's home that I knew and loved so well. And to prove that I was actually there, I just imagined the world relative to that position. I saw the world, not from any place in New York City, I saw it from Barbados. So mentally, I saw the world as I would see it if I were in Barbados. <clears throat> I thought of my place in New York City, and I saw it 2,000 miles to the north of me. I thought of other places, <clears throat> excuse me, and they were all related to where I am. Assuming that I am, and I fell asleep in that assumption. When I awoke the next morning, the snow was even higher, and I am not in Barbados. I am in New York City. While time progressed, the war in Europe was on. England was at war. No ships were playing the Atlantic or plying the Atlantic. They were going down faster than they could build them, and we were almost at war. And then came the month of August, and I received a cable from my family saying, We didn't tell you because we knew you couldn't come to Barbados. There aren't any ships. And certainly in those days, there were no planes. And they said, Mother is dying. She's been dying for two years, but now this is it. And if you want to see her in this world once more, you've got to come now. I mean now. I received that cable in the morning, and my wife and I sailed the very next night. One ship was leaving at midnight, the Argentine, and we sailed in late August for Barbados. And there I went to Barbados, the last place in that world that I intended to go. In fact, we had planned to go to Maine for a vacation. We were going to close that month and go to Maine for five or six weeks, and then return to reopen sometime in October. <clears throat> but all the planes were changed to fulfill what I had done in an idle moment because of disappointment. But it taught me a lesson, not to use this law oddly, not to use it to escape, but to use it deliberately because you cannot escape from it. A series of events will mold themselves across which you will walk, leading up to the fulfillment of that state. And so here I put myself just to escape from the cold and the disappointment of the evening in Barbados of all places. Then something happens. And I am compelled to make the journey, the last place in the world we intended to go. And we sailed at midnight and got there four and a half days later on this Argentine ship. It was an American ship, but it was called the Argentine. Mother dies as they all said she would, and I returned to the States with the knowledge of what I had done and began to teach it. And in that audience of, I would say, a thousand, they all began to apply it. With tremendous success. Then where is God? If all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that is made, John 1 3, then where is he? I knew exactly what I did, and I know what happened. 
Well, if I can trace what happened to an invisible cause, what I did, and repeat it, and tell that story to others, who can take it and try it and repeat it? Well, then, I have found causation. And if all causes spring from God, then I have found him. I have found him as my own wonderful human imagination. That's God. There isn't a thing in this world that wasn't first imagined. Now here you aren't go or you aren't called to make the thing. Things are. All things in the world are. Eternity exists and all things in eternity independent of creation, which was an act of mercy. William Blake. You can't conceive of something that isn't. As a result of this in 1941, it was 1949 that I gave a series of lectures in Milwaukee, and the head chemist at Alice uh, Chalmers came to my meetings. I made some statement using a term that is a scientific term, and the word was entropy. Well, I might have used it, not as the scientists would have used it, but I had my own concept of what the word meant and my definition of it. <clears throat> and I said, I can change the past. If I can make something, I can unmake it. Whatever I can create, I can uncreate. Whatever I can make, I can unmake. He said, you can't do it, for we use entropy in our laboratory every day, and entropy means the past is unalterable. You can't change it. If the past could be changed, I wouldn't know what I am doing in the lab. He said, all day long I received little samples of water from all over the world because we make these huge turbines and from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, all over the world. They send samples because the water passes through certain mineral deposits and carries with it whatever is in that, uh, in that mineral. And so, it cakes. We have to analyze that water and then bring up a solution because we made the product. And I said, I don't care what you say. I know what I've done. And you can undo the past. You can change it. It can't be done. I said, as far as I'm concerned, the whole, <clears throat> the whole vast world is finished. Creation is finished. And I am only becoming aware of it. Well, I need not confine myself to what my senses see and what reason allows and what wise men tell me I should accept. I can imagine a state. I can't see it with my physical eye. But I can't imagine a state, and that state imagined is. I can imagine a state that is in conflict with the facts of life. And the facts of life, you say, are, and they can't be altered. I can imagine a state that would undo the fact. Well, that state exists. If I occupy that state, it will undo the so-called uh, fact you say is fixed forever. Well, he questioned my sanity, but he was an awfully nice chap. His name was Professor uh, Imhoff. He was the head of the department of this chemical setup. So while he was a very wise and gentle and kind person, I returned to New York City and he sent me the scientific newsletter dated October the 15th, 1949, in which he said, Now, Neville, I apologize for having said what I did. This man is far greater as a physicist than I am as a scientist. He is Professor Feynman of Cornell University, one of the outstanding physicists of our day in speculative theoretical physics, and this is his letter. 
and he wrote in this little letter, which was printed in the magazine, a story concerning the positron, a little particle that is produced in atomic disintegration. <clears throat> it's like the electron, but differs in this respect. It is positive in its charge instead of being negative. Now these are the words of Feynman. They are not mine. He says the positron is a wrong-way electron. It starts from where it hasn't been and it speeds to where it was an instant ago. It has bounced so hard its time sense is reversed, and then it returns to where it hasn't been. Now this is Feynman. This isn't Neville. Then he goes on to say, when a little electron is moving speedily in space, if it is bounced, it's deflected, but continues on its course. But if it is bounced so hard, then its time sense is reversed and it returns to where it hasn't been. Now, he said, on the basis of this, we must now conclude that the entire concept that man held of the universe is false. We always believed that the future developed slowly out of the past. Now, with this concept, which we have seen and photographed, we must now conclude that the entire space-time history of the world is laid out and we only become aware of increasing portions of it successfully, or successively. This is 1949. That professor, Richard Feynman, who is now at Caltech in Pasadena, received the Nobel Prize last year for that paper. They held it up almost 20 years, for this is 1968, and he got it in 1967, and the paper, the paper came out, in 1949. I didn't know it as a scientist. I knew it as a mystic. I see it. I can't explain why. I only know everything is. The whole thing is finished and all I have to do is to adjust to it. If I know what I want for myself or for another, I adjust to it because the thing is. Well, if I adjust to it and it feels natural, when it feels natural, then I open my eyes upon this world that I have shut out for that purpose. As I open my eyes, <clears throat> I am turned around. I have actually been where reason would deny that I have been there. And then, as I open my eyes, I have been speeding <clears throat> with the speed of light from wherever I have assumed that I am <clears throat> to where physically I am. Now, I am so shocked to find that I am not actually there, <clears throat> excuse me, but I am here physically. My time sense is turned around, and now I move across a bridge of incidents, a series of events that compels me to move towards the fulfillment of that invisible state. And when I get there, it is not invisible. It becomes visible. It throws itself on the screen of space, and the world calls that a fact. And they stand amazed at that because that to them is real. Prior to its becoming objective, it was unreal. So I tell you, faith is unseen reality. You don't give reality to the unseen. It is loyalty to unseen reality that is the secret of faith. So when he tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1, 1, by faith, we understand that the world was created by the word of God, so that things, were, things seen were made from things that do not appear. Now, let me share with you this story. A friend of mine, living in L.A., 
came many years ago from Pittsburgh. So in 66, she returned to Pittsburgh and met the few friends who are still in this world. Many have departed. There was one lady she speaks of <clears throat> as Betty. While Betty married this man, and his name is supposed to be Matthew, while Matthew was suffering from a certain disease which led progressively to total uh, deafness, in the interval, it is accompanied by dizziness and wrenching. What the name is, I don't know. She told me, but I am not familiar with these medical terms. But it is something that is incurable as of today. No doctor knows how to arrest it, and it progressively moves towards total deafness. In the meanwhile, it is a most uh, painful condition that, uh, that accompanies it, and these horrible dizzy spells, and then the wrenching. She told the story, as I told it to her, how you can revise the past. That in spite of the fact that he is moving towards the inevitable total deafness, it need not be. They can go back and change the past to the point in time, which was 14 years before, when this thing began to show in his body. He didn't believe it. She said to me he would ask me 101 questions concerning it. Not because he wanted to be cruel, but, but he is a rational being, a very intelligent person, and it didn't make sense. Because it didn't make sense, he discounted it, but Betty thought, I will try it. Now, she said, it was a very difficult thing for Betty and myself, because my parents were both deaf, and Betty's parents were both deaf, and we were raised in the environment of deaf people. We had to learn sign language to communicate with our parents. So Betty had the experience of deaf parents, both of them, and I had the experience of deaf parents. And to be confronted with this picture, it was a horrible, horrible picture. And Betty said to me, I will do it every night. And she took a simple little sentence, Matthew, she called him Matt. Matt is hearing perfectly. That's all that she did. Meanwhile, he's getting worse and worse and worse. A year went by and he's still progressing towards the inevitable end of total deafness when in his business he had this excruciating pain from ear to ear and he cried out. While well, they rushed him to the doctor and the doctor gave him an injection to alleviate the pain. Then the doctor said, you can't go back on the job right away. You must go to your room and rest for a while. While well, in the room he dozed and went into a little sleep and when he awoke he was hearing perfectly. Hearing perfectly. He was sent home early that evening. He usually arrives at 6 o'clock. When he came home on the early side, the wife greeted him with the usual, Oh, what's wrong? What happened at the office today? <clears throat> he replied, Betty, I'm hearing perfectly. He used the identical word that she had, er, night after night, heard. All in her imagination. She heard him say, Betty, I'm hearing perfectly. So she heard her own name called by her husband, Matt, and he confirmed it by saying, I'm hearing perfectly. Then he said, I believe, I believe, I believe. Now this is a year and a half ago, she said. In the interval, we never breathed it, did not mention it in our letters. I communicate constantly, but I did not for one moment state anything further than uh, I did when I was there in the flesh and told her of her principle a principle which you could call by any name. We call it God, while God is one's own marvelous human imagination. That's God. 
Man is all imagination, and God is man and exists in us, and we in him. The eternal body of man is the imagination, and that is God himself. And all things are possible to God. You and I, here we are, fashioned by the grace of God, born by the grace of God. <clears throat> and we dare to put a limit on the power of God. Here we, the creature born by the grace of God, and then we tell God, or tell ourselves, what he can't do. And therefore, I give to God, who made us and brought us into the world, and now we give to him the sin against the Holy Ghost, which, as far as I see it, is man's doubt. The only thing that cannot be forgiven is the sin against the Holy Ghost, which is man's doubt and the power of God. You might have heard the late Senator Kennedy in one or two of his political speeches. He was very fond of quoting this passage from George Bernard Shaw. In fact, his brother Teddy in the eulogy in New York City quoted it. He didn't give credit to George Bernard Shaw, but his brother had done it time and again, and therefore people knew, those who heard him, that it was not Teddy's or Bobby's, it was George Bernard Shaw. And this is the quote. Some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. Why not? The world tells me it can't be. Why not? And not all things are, or are not all things possible to God? And did not God become me that I may become God? Well, if he became me, I can't dissect the body and find him in an atom. I can't find him in the brain. I can't find him in any organ of the body. Therefore, where is he? Just where is he? I'm told in scripture he has a name. And this name is his name forever and forever. And the name is defined. And the name defined is I am. Well, that's the core of my being. I can't put it aside. I sit down to imagine who's imagining I am. I have never been able to put I am out there and look at it. It is the being perceiving, not the thing perceived. It is the being making, not the thing made. It's the being creating, not the thing created. And man stands amazed at his own creations and forgets the creator. He falls in love with all the things he makes and he forgets completely the maker. And the maker is I am. There is no other maker. There is no other God. So when I found that out, I knew that when I went to Barbados, I was actually sleeping in my mother's home in a bed that I knew well, and it was warm. I could feel the warmth of the tropics. I could detect the odors of the tropics. They differ from the northern world. All the things that are related to the tropics, I detected. Well, who is doing it? I am. I can't get away from it. Is that God? Yes. Well, he didn't take a train there. No, there aren't any trains. He didn't take a plane. No, there were no planes then. He didn't take a ship. No, he simply was there. Wherever I assume that I am, I am there. And so if I can assume that I am elsewhere to the point that someone like my sister actually sees me there, well... I must be wherever I am in imagination. One day I had occasion, while in New York City, to assume that I am being seen by my sister, whose son was desperately ill, age 17, and riddled with cancer. No one knew what was wrong with him until they opened him, and then he was too far gone. 
The whole body was completely riddled at the age of 17, and they say that if you are young when you develop this, then like all young things, it grows. If you are developed to the age of 60 or 70, the chances are you won't die of it because things aren't building then. You are only marking time. But youth is growing. Whether it be a good cell or a bad cell, it simply grows rapidly. So at the age of 17, he wasn't feeling well. They wonder what's wrong with the boy, and someone suggested going in and taking a little look on the inside. They thought it might be some appendix or some peculiar thing there. So they opened him up and sewed him back. Not a thing they could do. The whole body was simply gone. Well, to comfort my sister, I thought I would put my body physically in New York City and assume I'm in Barbados. I'm in my nephew's room, and when my sister enters the room, she is going to see me, and not her son. I actually assumed that I am there. I am occupying the same space that my nephew Billy occupied, and then when I felt it natural, I assumed that my sister came in. She came in, and she came over, and she looked, and she couldn't see anyone but her brother, Neville. I came out of that silence. I came into the living room where a friend, by invitation, had arrived for a cocktail. Because I had said, drop by at the cocktail hour. It's around 5 o'clock, and we'll have a drink. I went into the silence around 4.30, and I didn't come out until maybe after 5, 5.15 or 5.20. So when I came into the living room, she said, Neville, what's wrong with you? You are always so gay and light. Why do you seem so heavy now? And I told her what I had just done. Eight days later, we had no air mail coming, but had to depend upon mail by the sea. Eight days later, I received a letter from my sister. She said, Neville, I don't understand it. But this very moment, I went into Billy's room, and I could not for the life of me see Billy. I'm seeing you. I walked right over to the bed, and I looked at my son, and he is not there, and it's you. And you're looking at me and smiling, and I could not. I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and Billy was not there. It is you. I don't understand it. If you have any knowledge of any or anything about it to throw light upon this, tell me. That same lady was there eight days later, and I brought her letter out that I had received that day and showed it to her. So I had two witnesses, my wife and this lady. So I know that I must be wherever I am in imagination. So I tell you, don't treat it lightly. You can put yourself in prison and find yourself committing an act of which you are totally unaware or accused of something of which you are not aware and going to prison. Some people put themselves there. People put themselves out of it. People don't realize not a thing is happening by accident. It's all by unseen causation. So you actually move yourself into states emotionally and dwell in them just for a split second and you jump back or you think you jump back. You did, but the bridge is now about to appear and across the bridge of incidents you walk, leading up to the fulfillment of what you did unwittingly. So this is what I mean by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You hope for it? Well, now the assurance is faith. Faith is not going to make it so. Faith is loyalty to the unseen reality. You know what you did. Well, now that's unseen by mortal eye. 
Now you remain loyal to that unseen reality and see how this bridge of incidents is woven, and you do not consciously devise it. No man can consciously devise the incidents necessary to lead you to the fulfillment of what you've done. Well, this is what I mean by faith. The very substance of what the world calls real is unseen. It's unseen reality. The whole vast creation is finished, just as Feynman said, and he got his prize for it. So he got the $50,000 for that which I said as a mystic. But you can't give a mystic money because he has no standing in the community. Feynman has standing. He teaches physics at Caltech, so he could say the identical thing in his own words, and they say, isn't this marvelous? And so he has a paper on it, now a book on it, and a title to it, so he has all the titles. And because I am the unknown, and in the eyes of Feynman, not educated by his standards, no formal education, but what I see, I see, and I can't deny it. What I experience mystically, I can't deny. So I am speaking from experience, I'm not theorizing. He goes in and he theorizes, he experiments, yes, and succeeds occasionally in taking a photograph of this so-called unseen little particle. And he has enough photographs to provide the existence of the positron. And then comes his wonderful honor, $50,000, and all that goes with it. But I tell you, in spite of all the books that are written, with all the great titles signed behind his name of the author, the book of books is a Bible, and no one knows the authors. They are all anonymous. No one knows who Peter, who James, who's Matthew, Luke, Mark, John, no one knows. They are anonymous, and they remain so. The characters, no one knows if they ever walked the face of the earth. I tell you that they didn't. Those who wrote it, they did. But the characters are anonymous. And the characters of scripture are all eternal states through which man passes. <clears throat> they are states, eternal states, not historical states. It's not secular history. It is salvation history. What I have told you so far as of now, in the past week I gave you five, and tonight is the sixth. It's all based upon what I've experienced. <clears throat> and I tell you, everyone will experience it. Not one can fail. <clears throat> because if one failed, God failed, and he isn't going to fail. So let the fool say in his heart, there is no God. Like this book, God is dead and all that nonsense. Let them have fun. He wrote that just to he wrote that just to make money, and of course, because the title caught on, especially today, he made oodles of money out of a title. A title with a book full of nonsense. But he's not alone. He has a lot of company. I tell you, you have faith in God, but don't look outside of him. You aren't going to find him out there. You are going to find him one day by a series of mystical experiences. And when they happen to you, they will happen in the first person, present tense experience. And you'll know who God is. You'll know that you are. For God's purpose is to give himself to you as though there were no other in the world, just you. Well, if he gives himself to you completely, there can't be you and God, just you, and you are he. And the whole plan is set up. And when it begins to unfold within you in a first-person present tense experience, 
I can't tell you the thrill. Now, when you depart this world, you are not restored to life, as all people are who have not had the experience. You insolently put on your body <clears throat> of glory, and you're in an entirely different age, a different world altogether. And all the others wait for that moment in time when they, too, have the experience. And then, when death comes following the experience, they instantly move from the body of decay, for this is decay, into a body that is immortal, a body of glory. So that is for everyone in the world, and may I tell you, don't try to argue with anybody who tries to give you all the reasons of Caesar, why it can't be. They put you in a little furnace and bring out a few little ashes and say that was the man. Therefore, he can't survive because that's it. Well then, let him have his little fun. It's perfectly all right. Let him be amused. Don't move. Let him be amused. He's such a wise person. So wise in his own counsel and so wise in the eyes of fools. He can only be wise in the eyes of fools. So don't argue with him. Leave him alone.